Our time in the Word this morning takes us back to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus will have a lot to say about fear. We are all very familiar with fear. It's an extremely powerful force. Not all fear is bad. It is as if we're programmed with this very strong self-preservation instinct that keeps us from suffering great harm. You have a one-year-old, and he's already showing fear when he gets too close to the edge of the bed. He's figured out gravity. He knows if he gets too far, he'll fall off and get hurt. And so fear is what keeps him from getting too close to the edge. And that's good. That instinct stays with us as adults. If you're hiking and you come upon a grizzly bear, fear is what tells you, I probably shouldn't go pet the thing. You should just back away slowly, move on. That, that's also good. But the problem is fear can be a great hindrance to us sometimes. It can keep us from doing things we should do. We are the right thing. For example, it's, it's a wild example, but nonetheless, what if you witnessed a mafia murder and you're called to testify, the only witness, but then you start receiving death threats against your family? Pretty legitimate fear. Would that fear silence you? Would it keep you from testifying? It might. Other examples are not so life and death, but they still show how fear can hinder us. Maybe you're a cancer survivor and you've been invited by a local school assembly to come and speak to the kids and encourage them with the, the invaluable lessons you learned. But before you take the stage in front of these 500 kids, just the fear of public speaking strangles you, and you feel like you, you can't speak. It's like fear has paralyzed you, despite your best intentions. I've seen that the paralyzing power of fear in action. You know, at home, I don't, I don't have any problem killing spiders, but sometimes... I try and make the kids do it because I'm not always going to be home and Angel's not going to do it. So <laughs> even though otherwise they're very obedient kids, usually they just they can't bring themselves to get that close and, and kill the spider. They, they, they don't want to be rebellious, but fear is strong. So we get it. Fear is powerful. It's an often paralyzing force that can hinder us from doing what is good or right. And we know that as Christians, we're not immune to this fear. It certainly can affect us as well. And I think we would probably all agree that the number one way fear hinders us is with sharing the gospel or sharing our testimony. We all know that as Christians, we're called to tell others about the good news of Christ Jesus. Now, how many times have you wanted to share the gospel with a coworker, but you chickened out? Or how many family dinners have you wanted to say something, but you found an excuse not to? Now, how many times have you heard someone slander the Lord and you wanted to say something in defense, but, but you didn't? I think I can speak for all of us. The answer is many times. And so why didn't you speak up? The answer to that is fear. You feared some reprisal or conflict or slander or worse. You feared loss, loss of reputation, loss of a relationship, loss of a job. You feared something, and that fear silenced you. It paralyzed your tongue despite your best intentions. And I would say that most Christians have good intentions. They, they want to be faithful to, to tell others the joy of Christ, the good news. They, they want to share the gospel with their loved ones, but just fear makes it hard. So what do we do about this? Well, I would argue that if fear rules you or it keeps you from doing things you know you should do, and I would say you have a perspective problem. A lot of people just have too high a view of man, too low a view of God. And that in turn leads to this 
oversized fear of men and and a little fear of God. It's not to say that the threats you face aren't real. It's just that you're probably blowing them way out of proportion, especially when they're lined up against the truths of God. Like, is there a God? Is he good? Does he care for you? Is he in control? Is he sovereign over life and death? Is he sovereign over your life and death? And in Christ Jesus, is your soul secure forevermore? So tell me again what you're so afraid of. Look, we have many legitimate sources of fear in life, even as Christians, but it's only when you lose sight of God that these fears rule you. The Lord Jesus never promised that in following him, all of our fears would just disappear and melt away. No, no, fear remains, but he promised that the triune God would be working in with for you. It's this divine perspective that gives us courage, which is all about doing the right thing in the face of fear. And all Christians need such courage, and the Lord Jesus will help us receive it today in our text by way of encouragement. If the fear of man is like a venom, Jesus gives the divine perspective as an antidote which enables us to overcome its paralyzing effects. We get all this from Matthew 10, verses 24 through 31, our passage today. You can turn there if you haven't already. Matthew 10, verses 24 through 31. Again, we're in Matthew 10, which is the second major sermon that Jesus preached that Matthew records for us. This one is all about discipleship, where Jesus is engaging his 12 disciples in the work of the ministry He's about to send them out to preach, but first he gives them these instructions that this whole chapter is about. We've gone through verses 5 through 15, which is that initial set of instructions that's very specific to their first local short-term mission. After that, verses 16 through 23 continues to speak of the dangers they will face. And Jesus tells them that, that squarely you're going to face opposition. Now, we noted that a shift takes place in verse 16 where Jesus starts speaking prophetically, looking forward in time beyond that first limited short-term mission as words find application after the cross and beyond when they would engage in that long-term global great commission to make other disciples. And so we found all these words still have great relevance to us today. I mean, so long as the world, the flesh, and the devil are still in operation All Christians can expect some degree of opposition that Jesus envisions here. Now we're moving on. Today we're in verses 24 through 31, and we find that another transition takes place in verse 24. Here Jesus starts speaking even more generally, indicating further that these instructions really are meant for all disciples. He no longer is speaking exclusively in the second person. You know, you, you, you. Now he starts using these indefinite third-person terms like like verse 24. He doesn't say, you are not above your teacher. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher. Verse 32, everyone who confesses me before men, and so on. So what Jesus says after verse 24 clearly has now the widest scope of application. This is confirmed by the fact that much of what Jesus says in these verses You can find them elsewhere. He repeats this teaching in many other places in different settings, which are really meant for all disciples. I hate to burst your bubble, but 
when a guest preacher comes and will preach to us on a Sunday morning, they're not preparing a brand new message just for us. They're taking something they've already preached, it's new to us, and that's what they're delivering. Well, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He did the same thing. These people were new. There are no recordings. He's, he repeats himself quite often. All this goes to say, though, there's really no doubt that the instructions Jesus gave the 12 disciples on this specific commission, that they do have a greater lasting impact guiding the church thereafter. And we'll see again just how relevant Christ's teaching is this morning. Now, we're going to read as we go, but I want to start out verses 24 and 25. It's a perfect transition. In this pair of verses, Jesus makes just a very general, broad statement, but it has a way of really perfectly summarizing what's come before and preparing us for what's to come in this discourse. So let's, let's go. Verse 24, verse 25. He says in verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. This should sound familiar. It's verse 24. It's like one of Christ's favorite sayings. It can be found on three other occasions, different times, where he says basically the same thing. This is called a tautology, which means you say the same thing twice in different ways. This is actually a familiar rabbinical saying, and its meaning is almost self-evident. Like, by definition, a disciple is lower than his rabbi or teacher in just knowledge and wisdom and experience. Also in the Jewish world, disciples were considered the virtual slaves of their rabbi, so he was teacher and master. But like in no sense was a disciple greater than his master. It's like today, if you decide to enroll in a martial arts class, you'd be given a white belt, just starting off, and in no sense would anyone consider you greater or above the instructor who has a fifth-degree black belt. We all understand this. You are there, however, because you hope to become like him. You hope to learn, advance, gain your own black belt, and beyond. And like Jesus says next, verse 25, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. It's pretty obvious in this analogy that Jesus is the master. Before him are his disciples. This would include us. That's all believers are graciously made slaves of Christ, being freed from sin. We all happily follow Jesus as Lord. That means for us as disciples, it, it is enough for us just to become like him. In fact, isn't that our goal, right? Christ-likeness. We are trying to become like our master, our Lord. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into the head who is Christ Jesus. Now we know that we're never going to attain perfect Christ-likeness in this life, but we are happy to be conformed to his image in just any way, in every way. As disciples, we're meant to seek to become like Christ in every way. 1 John 2.6 says that the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Speaking of Christ. Look, you get all this. It's pretty straightforward. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus. He does not follow you. You follow him. And your hope, your goal is to become more like him in every way, in his love, in his wisdom, his knowledge of scripture, and his holiness, and so forth. Okay, but now here's the point. 
as disciples, we, we seek to follow Jesus in all ways, and that means in all ways. You can't pick and choose which ways you want to be like Jesus. But does this mean we also have to follow Jesus in his rejection? Do you have to become like him in his suffering, in his opposition, in his cross-bearing? Yes, it does. This is actually a hallmark of true discipleship, taking up your cross to follow him, something he'll make explicit at the end of this chapter. But the point he's making here is that in following Jesus, that also means accepting being treated like he was. And what did that look like? Well, the rest of verse 25 gives just one little sample. Just one sample, verse 25, middle. It's enough for the disciple. They become like his teacher, the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? It's not critical to get into the etymology of that term Beelzebul right now. We'll, we'll do that when it shows up again in Matthew 12. Just in short, it's just a Jewish nickname for Satan. And so as an example, I mean, Jesus, he's the Lord. He's the head of the household. But how did they treat him? Speaking of the religious leaders, well, they slandered him as satanic. They claimed he was not spirit-filled. He was Satan-filled. And it's not an isolated incident. This was an ongoing smear campaign by the religious leaders. We saw it back in chapter 9. We'll see it again in chapter 12. The point here is not really to dwell on this slander, but to get the big picture. Jesus was holy, perfect, righteous, loving, kind, gentle, patient. But they still hated him. They still rejected him, hardened in their sin. So how do you think they're going to treat the members of his household who are not even that perfect? Well, the same way. So in these verses, really, Jesus, he's making the same really simple point he makes in John 15, 20. John 15, 20, he tells his disciples in the upper room, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, that's the direct version. That's what he means. And so really, this is in line with everything he said in verses 16 through 23, about expecting opposition. Like he said, we kind of sum it up in verse 22. You will be hated by all because of my name. Okay, there you go. That's what to expect. And in verses 24 and 25, Jesus is saying such treatment, like this just comes with the territory. This is what it's like to be a disciple of a master, how they treat him. This is what you can expect. You have to come to terms with this. This is the nature of discipleship. Now, but at this point, Jesus, he's already said enough about what we can expect in following him in the world. His disciples get it. Okay, they've got a hard road ahead of them. But next, Jesus moves on and he wants them to know that this fact should not stop them. The promise of persecution certainly instills fear. Like who wants to be slandered or rejected or hated? That did not dismay Jesus, it should not dismay us. Because of opposition, fear will be real. But in the verses to follow, Jesus goes on to give us the courage to face it. He doesn't deny it, but it doesn't have to control you. And so verse 26 starts with a therefore, and verses 26 through 31, Jesus gives this divine perspective 
on our discipleship that we might live in courage and not shrink back in fear. You find in these verses, 26 through 31, three times he repeats the command, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. But he knows it's, it's not enough just to say that, just to, to bark the command is not necessarily helpful. Rather, he goes on to then give three corresponding reasons not to fear, despite all this opposition. And so what we have here is Jesus literally trying to encourage or implant courage in the hearts of his disciples. And that's something we still need. We will all face varying degrees of opposition for the sake of following Christ. But this is how you can still be bold and faithful despite it. So the rest of our time now, we're going to go into verses 26 through 31. And we're going to see these three reasons not to fear despite opposition. That you might walk with courage. Three reasons not to fear despite opposition. That you might walk with courage. The first reason is that God's justice is greater. We'll explain, but God's justice is greater Let's get into verse 26. He says, therefore, do not fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 26 is another one of those things we call a tautology. You're saying the same thing, just two different ways. But this saying is a little more mysterious. What does he mean? The verse itself, it's very simple. The words mean exactly what you think they would mean. The meaning here just comes from the context. Verse 26 begins with, therefore, indicating he's saying this in response to what he just said in verse 25. And verse 26, he says, do not fear them. Who's the them? Well, clearly they are the slanderers from verse 25, those who were calling Jesus Beelzebul and likewise maligning his disciples. And so, He's saying, do not fear such opponents. Why shouldn't we fear such opponents? Because, he says, that there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed. And so with this in mind, what is being concealed that needs to be revealed? The answer then is just the truth. The truth about Christ's character and that of his disciples. Because they're being maligned. Like obviously that the, the top way Jesus was opposed was death. I mean, they killed him, obviously. But the most persistent way he was opposed was misrepresentation, which is a type of slander. That's a big deal, and it's a huge fear for most people. You realize, like, before they killed Jesus, they sought to assassinate his character. And they did this through lies and misrepresentation. So they said he was Satan-possessed. They said he had no regard for the Torah, for God's law. They said he was a sinner. Meanwhile, these religious leaders claimed that they were holy and righteous and kept the law. Now, what Jesus says in verse 26, he repeats over in Luke 12. It's a different time. He was teaching a crowd of thousands, but he says the same thing. But there, before saying this, he says this. Luke 12, 1, he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. See, the religious leaders, they claimed they were righteous and they kept God's law. Meanwhile, claiming Jesus, he's unrighteous. He he violates 
God's law. Their, their smear campaign was relentless. It continued after the cross against his disciples. But, but was that true? No. In reality, the religious leaders were total hypocrites. They were complete sinners in heart and in deed. They did not serve God from their hearts. They were serving their own interests, not the Lord's. Their hearts were far from God. And as for Christ and his disciples, they they really were holy, innocent, pure. They were seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. So what Jesus is saying then is, don't fear them. Don't fear their misrepresentation, their slander. Don't let that silence you because the truth will come out. Everything concealed will be revealed. When? At the very least, on the last day. This would be 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, which says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So what we're hearing here is just the first divine perspective we need, and that is God's justice is greater. Nothing escapes his notice. While the wicked are allowed to prosper for a short time, and they are allowed to get away with this slander, not forever. Coming is a day of reckoning when all of these wrongs will be made right. And on that day, all believers will be vindicated as true justice is served. All the, all the false accusations that led to the ruin of these disciples, be it their reputation or their lives, will be shown as just that, false, that the truth will come out. You know, we noted earlier how fear hinders us, right? It can strangle our testimony. And look, the fear of misrepresentation is huge today. That might be the biggest fear we face in America, at least. This is effectively cancel culture. Most Christians in America, not not the Middle East, but most Christians in America, you're not legitimately fearing being killed for being a Christian. But now, these days, you might fear being fired. You might fear losing your business. You might fear being blacklisted. Do you have any of these fears? How are Christians today being misrepresented? I think we all know the biggest way is through the, the sexual revolution, it's like every couple of months, like a pro athlete or a musician comes out with a bold stand online, and they uphold God's sexual ethic. And they're not saying anything crass or inflammatory or rude. Like, they're just quoting the Bible. Then the mob comes after them saying, what? Like, they're bigots. They're unloving. That's hate speech. And apparently now us Christians, like, we're the immoral ones for holding to God's morality. But this pressure leads to more than a few to just backpedal, to take back their statement, to recant. This is how fear works. But Jesus is telling us effectively, like, don't do that. Don't backpedal. Don't recant. Don't fear them. God is just. He will set all things right in the end. Trust him and keep speaking the truth. Lean on his promises, right? Remember the Beatitudes, uh, the last beatitude, Matthew 5.11. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
You need to look to Christ himself. He knew slander and misrepresentation. He shows us how to respond. Like 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Verse 23 says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Even Christ knew, like, they're getting away with it now, but they won't get away with it forever. This is, there's a God who judges righteously. And I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to entrust myself to him while doing what is right. You too need to trust God. He will judge righteously in the end. This is the divine perspective we need to live with courage. Once you get this, it leads to bold testimony, which is what verse 27 is all about. It says in verse 27, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Three for three. This is a third tautology, saying the same thing two different ways. But the meaning is singular. The goal of these opponents is to silence Christ and his disciples. That didn't work on Christ. He just kept preaching the truth anyway. It should be the same with us. Our mission to go and make other disciples, it requires us to speak. You have to say something. And we're not to just lurk around in the shadows looking for some safe space to tell people about Jesus like we're always walking on eggshells. Now look, the enemy is the one who wants us out of the public square. But here you know, Jesus is emboldening his disciples. Don't fear them. And instead, just declare the truth boldly and courageously. Up to this point, Jesus had given his disciples a lot of instruction behind closed doors. And that's what he means by what he told them in the darkness, what was whispered in their ear. Granted, they wouldn't have ears to understand all this truth until after the resurrection. But nonetheless, none of what he told them was for their ears only. Christianity is not a secret society. It's not a cult of secret knowledge where where only the initiated get to hear the full truth. No, but especially after the resurrection, it's time for all of God's word to be broadcast far and wide, which is why he says, just go tell it on the housetops. Now, at this point, several commentaries going through this passage, they all referenced the same illustration from the Reformation, and for good reason. It's so fitting. Hugh Latimer was the leader of the English Reformation. One day he was going to preach before the sometimes violent and temperamental King Henry VIII. It was his audience. And as he was about to say something he knew the king would not like, he kind of slipped into this audible dialogue with himself in the pulpit. And he said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king is here. But then he paused and said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you do not say. The king of kings is here. And so may the, the fear of man never silence us from speaking the truth. First, do not fear opposition. Knowing God's justice is greater. He will right all wrongs. The truth is will be made known. All believers will be vindicated in Christ, and your real reputation is secure in the Lord. So just trust him and boldly testify. Now, on to a second reason not to fear. Number two, God's 
power is greater. God's power is greater. This is verse 28. He says next, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And for the second time, Jesus issues the command, do not fear. Now it's in the present tense, just continually, do not fear. But the nature of this opposition now, it jumps to the extreme. Like it's one thing not to fear those who are trying to slander you. It's another thing to not fear those who are trying to kill you. We think like, Jesus, you can't be serious. This is probably hyperbole, right? But remember in the previous passage, verse 16, he said we're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves. Does not sound very safe. And then verse 23, or 21, he told us, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Now we made the point, this is, is the extreme case This is the the highest cost of discipleship of which not all will be required to pay. But all must count the cost and be willing to pay it. All of the apostles minus John were required to pay. They all lost their lives for their testimony of Christ. Again, we know it's uncommon in America, but worldwide many Christians face the reality of this choice. Either deny Christ or die, as we prayed for Church in the Middle East this morning. So how can we really be told not to fear when our life is on the line? Like, Why should we not fear that? We're about to die. Who, who would not fear that? But Jesus first points out that the power of our opponents is quite limited. When he says, they can kill you, right? They have the power to take your life. That's true. But that is all that they can do. They can kill the body, but they have no power To kill the soul. They cannot touch or affect the immaterial side of man. The Bible teaches that God made us two parts. Physical, spiritual. Body and soul. United together. And what is death? Biblically, death means separation. It's not ending existence. It's separation. Physical death, the first death, is the separation of your body and soul. Your body returns to the dust. Your soul then goes to either be with God in glory or away from God in judgment. And we know God is the ultimate author of life and death, but man has been usurping God's prerogative to take life ever since Cain and Abel. Even still, nothing that man does to kill the body has any effect on the second death. And yes, there is a second death, the Bible mentions. That is the separation of you body and soul, from God forever in hell. And to God alone belongs the power and the authority to sentence people to such judgment and separation. So it really sounds like we should be fearing this God. And that's what Jesus says, verse 28, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Destroy is not speaking of annihilation. This is the eternal judgment Jesus himself will later conduct, like he says in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 41, he says to the lost, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. We know our God is good and loving and patient 
and long-suffering, but he's also holy and righteous and just. He has tolerated much evil in this world from Satan to man's rebellion, but not forever. He will right all wrongs. The problem of evil is real, but it will be solved. And the solution is called judgment. But now in God's love and mercy, he's made a way of escape, a refuge from his wrath. That way is found only in his son, Christ Jesus, who bore the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And so now that all who cling to him by faith alone can be saved from the wrath to come. However, all those who persist in their rebellion against this God and reject the gospel, well, they remain dead in their sins, and all they have waiting for them is this judgment. Here's another verse which speaks of Jesus as the final judge. You can listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. It speaks of Jesus who will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So Jesus is telling us here, like, you should not fear man. You should be fearing God. Why? Because the worst that man can do to us does not even come close to the worst that God can do to us. Man's power is limited, minuscule, and derivative, but God's power is almighty over body and soul. Now, we have to clarify, though, because in this case, Jesus is not mentioning God's power to strike dread into us. We do not need to fear God in the sense of dread any longer, because we've passed out of judgment. We, we no longer need the, the fear of God of, of terror, of judgment. No, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so we no longer should fear God's wrath at all. God's wrath is like a flood, but in his mercy, he's provided an ark, Christ. And look, by grace, through faith, we have entered that ark, which means we are forever safe from the storm. We still respect the storm's power, but we don't fear drowning anymore. Now, that being said, we still and always retain this reverential fear of God. Because we see his power. We know he's mighty and almighty. He's unlimited in power. But that reverential fear of God actually leads us to greater courage because we know that by the same power, like we're saved forever. Nothing can change that. What, what now can steal our salvation? Who can pluck us from the Father's hands? Who can steal us from the good shepherd's flock? Look, even if opponents kill the body, I mean, look, we've already died and our life is hid with Christ on high, Colossians 3.3. 3. And also this God has the power to raise the dead. So like, if we're now on his side by grace through faith, Really, what is there left to fear? It boils down to this. It, it feels like it's just programmed in our bones to preserve our own physical well-being when threatened. We, we all understand that. And it's not like we're advocating here throwing all caution to the wind and living as if your physical life doesn't matter. It does. But how can you possibly overcome the greatest fear, the fear of death, 
in a case where it might hinder you from being faithful to Christ. How do you overcome that fear? It's only by this divine perspective, which tells us, this life is not our only life. We're all going to die one way or another anyway, but our souls will live on, our bodies will be resurrected, either into eternal life or eternal destruction, but we're in Christ. And so by his death and resurrection, though we pass through the veil of the first death, we'll never see the second death, that judgment. As it's often been said, those who are born twice will only die once. And when we die, we will awake to eternal glory, just like the Lord said to the thief on the cross, as they're about to die together, today you will be with me in paradise. So all this means is that in Christ, you are safe. Like your real life is safe. It's secure. And so you don't need to fear. Let's let the Apostle Peter, who knew fear pretty well. Let's let him set it straight. Just, just listen here. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. This is the cross-reference. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You dwell on that passage. That is how you overcome the fear of death and arrive at perfect peace. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. That truth tells us God's power saved us Now that same power is protecting us. And so we can say, it is well with my soul. may not be well with my body. It's well with my soul. And so no wonder Peter says right after that in 1 Peter 1 that we rejoice. Even though we're being distressed by various trials, we rejoice. Because we know God is testing and proving our faith. And he says in 1 Peter 1.9 that we obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. And I tell you, I think some of the most powerful testimonies are born out of times when one's life is on the line. And you may never face that situation, but if you ever do, or, or something like it, something that feels like it, just gain this confidence in the Lord's power. And in short, this is resurrection power. That's the power the Apostle Paul longed to taste, the power of of the resurrection. Just realize though, you only experience this power when you're first conformed to Christ's death. You gotta die to be resurrected. But it's just like Paul expressed in Philippians 3.10, this desire, he says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This is what led Paul to be able to say, Philippians 1.21, As for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Look, when you gain this level of confidence in the Lord's power, there's there's no room left for the fear of man. Now to finish up, in conjunction with being convinced of God's power, you must also be convinced of God's care. This leads us to the third reason not to fear despite opposition 
Number three, God's care is greater. God's care is greater. Next few verses here, having just mentioned God's power to judge and by implication to save. Jesus seemingly wants to reassure his disciples that they really have moved out of God's judgment into his loving care. That this God is no longer their judge. They will never know him as judge. Now they only know him as Abba Father. And he cares for them. And we're going to see how this becomes yet another reason not to fear man. Verse 29. He says next, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's a noticeable change of tone in verse 29 and following. Jesus is speaking tenderly. Like this God has wrath. He is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. But like that's no longer for you. If you're in Christ, this God is your, your Abba, your father. Which was a special term of endearment that the Jews never used. It's just too personal. But Jesus used it. Being adopted into God's family, he wants us to know that this God now cares for you. And Christ communicates this by way of comparison. He says, two sparrows are sold for a cent. This this is like the ancient version of fast food. Sparrows and other small birds were plentiful, so they were caught, killed, skinned, roasted, sold. That's cheap food. And the going rate at the time was two for a cent. A cent refers to the lowest denomination of a Roman brass coin. Its value was about one-sixteenth of a day's wage. It's like not even an hour's wage. And this just communicates that sparrows were nearly worthless at the time. But not to God. I mean, they're still living creatures made by God. And he says not a single one of them falls to the ground apart from God's knowledge. This God is sovereign over every atom in the universe. But he has a special concern for living things, given his breath of life. This is showing a picture of a caring God who, while being transcendent in just majesty, he's also imminent. He's near to his creation. He's involved to uphold it, to sustain it, to care for it. And the point is, if that's true for sparrows, which are of relative little worth, how much more is that going to be true for us, both made in his image, and now redeemed by his son. And do you think this God cares for us more? He does. He adds verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. This shows that the intimate knowledge God has for each one of us. To us, this is trivial knowledge. Like We don't, we don't care how many hairs there are on our head. We, you know, we don't really know or, or care. We only seem to take notice when that number starts to dwindle. But even that which is inconsequential to us is dear to God. And look, the point is, if God takes notice of the most trivial aspects of our lives, how much more will he take notice of the substantial aspects of our lives? How much more will God show his care and concern for us when we're suffering, when we're being persecuted? Do you think he's unaware that you're being persecuted? Do you take your persecution as a sign that God has abandoned you or that he doesn't care for you? May it never be. Again, don't forget those Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 10. He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say cursed are those, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Your suffering for Christ's sake is not a sign of God's curse, but his blessing. It doesn't mean he's abandoned you, he's with you, upholding you. And again, back to 1 Peter 1, the various trials we face ultimately come from God. He sends us through the fire on purpose, but his design is never to consume us, it is rather to refine us. He's using our very limited time in this life to shape, grow, and purify our faith precisely because he cares for us. He has a different value system. We value our health and wealth above all. He values our Christ-likeness above all, and he will be faithful to make that happen. But when Christians are, are made to suffer persecution, they sometimes start to wonder, like, have I lost God's favor? And talk about fear. If that were true, that's fear. Has God abandoned me? But you should perish the thought that God, he intimately knows you. He cares for you. And so verse 31, the conclusion, he says, so do not fear. You are valuable. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Fear hinders how we live. It paralyzes our lips and lives, but it should not characterize us. The antidote is divine perspective. See here, lastly, there's the love of God for his people. And we know that nothing can separate us from this love. This doesn't mean that you won't fall to the ground. Sometimes that's the price of being conformed to the Lord's death. But like the sparrows, it's not going to be without the Father's intense care and concern and perfect plan, which is for your eternal good. This knowledge of God, this knowledge of the care of God, extinguishes just a flame of fear. And this is what enables us to live with courage and confidence. Look, I think we have just enough time to finish here. Go to Daniel chapter 3. Go ahead and flip over. You can leave Matthew. Daniel chapter 3. This just has to be the the perfect illustration capturing everything Jesus wants us to learn. Daniel 3. It tells of King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. Pride got to his head, and so he builds a golden statue of himself that was 90 feet tall, like Statue of Liberty style gold of himself. And at the dedication ceremony, he then orders that all people from all the nations under his domain bow down, fall down, and worship him. And worship the golden image. And everybody does, except three men. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel himself must have been traveling at the time. He's not mentioned in this episode. But his three friends who rose in rank with him in the kingdom, they refused to bow down. So they're basically arrested. They're brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar is enraged. But he gives them, because they're known officials now, but he gives them one more chance. He says, look, just we'll try again. If you fall down and worship the image, we're good here. But if not, Daniel 3.15, he says, if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? So just to think about the fear of this situation. Put yourself in their shoes. These are Jews. They're in captivity in a foreign land. Now, already by a miracle, they've rose. They, they rose in rank. They carved out a pretty good situation for themselves. 
but now their status and their lives are on the line, all because they just won't bow down to this statue. Like, why not just do it? Like, cross your fingers behind your back, but just do it. Why can't they pretend? But they knew. They just, they can't betray God. And now their witness is on the line. They can't pretend. Their, their witness is on the line. I'm certain they were afraid, but they give what has to be like the most courageous response to persecution. I think in like the whole Bible. Verse 17, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you see how they, they perfectly straddle confidence in God's power to save them with just trusting his perfect plan, even if he doesn't. But no matter what, they're not going to serve a false god. They're not going to abandon their testimony. Fear did not sew their lips shut. They overcame with divine perspective, and they boldly testified, come what may. Now after this, you probably remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar becomes even more indignant He's outraged. He orders that that furnace be heated seven times hotter. The trio was then bound and cast into the furnace. The flames were so intense that they killed the soldiers who threw them in. But then you might know what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar looks with astonishment because he sees not three, but four men walking around, unbound, in the furnace, totally unaffected by the fire. The fourth, he says, was like one of the sons of the gods. Now, we know this was the angel of the Lord. But the men were called out of the furnace. It was confirmed the fire had no effect on them. Their clothes was not burnt. Not a single hair was singed. It says they didn't even smell like smoke. And this is how God would extract praise from a pagan king. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. See, that's just the, the perfect picture encapsulating everything Christ wants us to learn as well. Fear of man is real. And the solution is just doesn't magically go away. It may never go away until you die. Believers will face it to some degree. But it need not rule us or control us or hinder us. God's knowledge is greater. His servants will be vindicated. Sometimes in this life, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but always in the next. And also God's power is greater. His servants will be delivered. And sometimes in this life, always in the next. And God's care is greater. He's not sleeping, missing a single moment of our lives. He cares, and, uh, cares for us in intimate concern with every aspect of our lives, certainly our persecution, all working out to our eternal good. This is the divine perspective we need if we hope to respond with the same courage, which is all about doing what is right, saying what is right in the presence of fear. And so I pray that the knowledge of God equips you this morning and encourages you that this truth implants courage in your heart, that you would just trust this God and live boldly as his witness, whatever fear 
you face. Let's make that our prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, we pray, hallowed be your name. We magnify you this morning because we see your greatness and your glory, your power, your knowledge, your wisdom, your justice and love. You're the perfect God who's on the throne. You, you see what's going on to your people. You know this world has been taken captive by sin and Satan. Not forever. You are a God who will make all things right. Even this is part of your perfect plan, allowing a redeemer to come and be glorified. But for now, we still live in a present evil age and Believers can expect some level of persecution and suffering for taking the name of Christ. Yet we still happily do so because we know Christ is greater. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And this Savior has given us the ultimate hope. He saved us from the second death from God's wrath, which we all very much deserve. For we all have sinned and gone astray. But he died. He rose again. He bore the wrath for us first that we might be free from the flood. We praise you for sending the ark of Christ. And now I pray you give us resolve to follow him. He's made us now, calling us to himself, his witnesses to be lights in a dark world. And this is hard. It is fearful. Fears abound. And they won't go away, but you've given us courage this morning through your word that we need not fear it. It need not bind us, our hands, our feet, our mouths. We know your love, your care, your knowledge, your power is greater so give us trust in you this morning. Deepen our conviction that you're on the throne, your will is perfect, all will be made right in the end, and just make us faithful, faithful ser- servants, witnesses, lights of Christ until the end, and all to his glory. It says, in, in his name we pray, amen.